Good morning. You all look well rested. I only get to preach once. I'm used to preaching twice this morning, so I'll just try to go twice as long. This morning, we're going to be talking about the righteous demands of God's law and of God's impartial judgment. And to introduce this idea to you this morning, I want to take you first, not to Romans, we'll be in Romans 2, but instead to Matthew 19. I want to take you to Jesus first, Matthew 19. And it's the story of the rich, young ruler and Jesus' interaction with him. In Matthew 19, 16 through 26, let me read it for us. Someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept. What am I lacking? Verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished. And said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible. But with God all things are possible. So this man came to Jesus and he starts by asking the wrong question. What good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? The man had too small a view of goodness and too high a view of himself. Jesus confronts this in verse 17. He says, only one is good, and that is God. But Jesus says, all right, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, friends, is that the gospel? No, that is not the gospel. That is not the good news. What is Jesus doing here? 
He is testing the man for self-righteousness. He is seeking to tear him down in order to build him up. He is seeking to point out his need in order to show him who it is that can meet that need. Verse 20. After Jesus says, okay, you want to do that? Keep the law. Keep the Ten Commandments. And the young man's relieved. He says, oh, great. That's good news. Because I've done all of that. In fact, in the book of Mark, he says, since my youth, I've done it all. My life is what you've just described. Really? So Jesus says, okay, well, just one more thing. Go and sell your possessions and give it all away. Give it to the poor. And the young man went away grieving. Why? Because he knew he couldn't do that. That was a bridge too far for him. He was rich. He liked his stuff. And he wanted to keep it. Jesus put his finger right on the very spot that he knew that this young man couldn't do. This was the good that the young man couldn't accept. And finally, the man saw his fault, but was unwilling to repent of it and turned to Jesus for help. So Jesus says, look, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. How difficult is it for a camel to go through an eye of a needle? It, thank you, it is impossible. It's a ridiculous scenario. Can't be done. People say, oh, the eye of the needle was a gate, and it was difficult, but with difficulty, a person could go through the eye of the needle gate on a, no, that's not what Jesus is saying. It's a preposterous, impossible scenario. And that's the point. Then who can be saved? The disciples ask, rightly. Wait a minute. Who can be saved? And Jesus says, with people this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Jesus is contrasting salvation by law, salvation by works, and salvation by the gospel of God's grace. The law can't save us because we can't perfectly obey it. And that is why we need the gospel, God's gracious provision. God graciously provides the satisfaction of His divine law through the gift of His own Son, Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless Lamb of God. We can't fulfill the law of God because we can't obey it. That's why we need the gospel. And what we can't do, Jesus did. And He did it for us. Now, why do I share that story? Because Paul is doing essentially the same thing that Jesus was doing here in Romans chapter 2. 
He is pressing home the righteous demands of the law and our inability, our complete inability, the complete impossibility to do all that the law commands us. And in this way, Paul is showing us, just as Jesus did, our need of the gospel, our need of God's deliverance. For with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. When I was a young boy, I remember my pastor growing up saying, you got to get them lost before you can get them saved. In other words, a person's got to be convicted person's got to get to the point where they are convinced of their own guilt, of their own inability, before they will ever cling to, run for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, they say, you know, great, I've been doing this since I was a young kid. I'm in good shape, Jesus. I don't really need you to do anything for me because I've done it all. And that is the place of condemnation. That is the place we must be moved away from. We've got to become convinced of our own guilt before we will ever receive the solution that God has provided through His Son, Jesus Christ. So, with that in mind, let's look at Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. Romans chapter 2. You there already? You guys are way ahead of me. Thank you. Romans 2, 6 through 16. God is the one who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus." This is the Word of God. Let's pray and ask for God's help to understand it rightly. Lord God, many have erred in seeking to understand these verses. And they have thought that somehow Paul was teaching salvation by works. As though that were possible. Lord, help us to get this right. Help us to understand that you are a God who judges justly. That you are a God who judges without partiality. And let us free from your just judgment of sin 
For if we seek to stand on our own before you, we will fall. We will fail and we will come under your just and righteous anger and indignation. So show us our own sin that we might run from it and run to the cross, run to Jesus by faith, trusting solely in him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we walk through this curious passage, we're going to see three important lessons about the judgment of God. Three important lessons about the judgment of God. Now, it's important as we begin here for you to notice here that all these lessons I'm sharing to you today, with you today, are about the judgment of God. You're going to see that in each main point. The judgment of God, the judgment of God, the judgment of God. This is what Paul is talking about. He's focusing in on the nature of and the basis for God's judgment of mankind. Paul is not talking about salvation here. Paul is not talking about God's grace here. Paul is not talking about the gospel here. We're going to get to that. But that grace and salvation and gospel are not Paul's interest here. So don't go there in these verses. For if you do, you will end up confusing law and gospel. Law and gospel are two separate categories. Two distinctive ideas and concepts in the scriptures. They're related, but they are not the same thing. Law says do. Gospel says done. Done in Christ. So that's important to keep in mind as we move forward. Paul's focus here is God's law, which is the basis of God's judgment. God's law is the basis of God's judgment. Paul is not talking about the gospel, which is the good news that Jesus has fulfilled the law on our behalf and paid the price for all our sins all the times that we've broken God's law. Paul is laying down the law here, all right? That's what he's doing. He's laying down the law. He's not offering up gospel hope here. And I trust you'll be able to see this more clearly as we move through it. So with that in mind, let's look at our first lesson about God's judgment. First of all, God's judgment, again, that's what we're focusing on, God's judgment is an impartial evaluation of each person's deeds, verses 6 through 11. Now, verses 6 through 11 are clearly a unit, for they are laid out in a literary form known as a chiasmus, in which each line represents itself and repeats itself, rather, in reverse order. So in this case, verse 6 and 11 are parallel in meaning. Okay, verse 6 and verse 11, the beginning and the end of this section are parallel in meaning. Verse 7 and 10 are parallel in meaning. And verses 8 and 9 right there in the middle are parallel in meaning. So if we laid out these verses out in a kind of alphabetical pattern, it would be A, B, C, 
CBA. Does that make sense? Go back to your poetry class, your literature class. Remember those schemes, those rhyme schemes and so forth. So we're going to look at these pairs together. First of all, the A pair, verses 6 and 11. God will render to each person according to his deeds, verse 6, verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. Those two concepts parallel each other intentionally. Now, this was a commonly accepted truth in Judaism, that God would judge according to deeds and that he would judge impartially. It's a truth that's clearly taught in the scriptures. Paul is quoting in verse 6 here from Psalm 61, verse 13. God will render to each person according to his deeds. God is an impartial judge, rendering to each person what each person truly deserves in accord with their deeds. Now again, this is about God's judgment. Okay, don't slip grace or gospel or salvation in here. This is judgment. It's the standard by which God judges humanity according to their deeds, and he does so impartially. God doesn't play favorites. Deuteronomy 10, 17, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He can't be influenced you can't schmooze God. You can't bargain with God. You can't make a deal with God. You can't buddy up to God. You can't butter Him up. And you can't buy Him off. He is holy and just. And because He is holy and just, He judges impartially. He doesn't play favorites. He doesn't bend the rules for some and not for others. Now, this was important to establish because many Jews thought that just because of their Jewishness, they had an inside track with God. Because they were Jews. God's chosen people. That God was somehow going to deal with them differently than he did everyone else. That they were on good terms with God just because of their status as Jews. Paul says here clearly that this is not the case. God does not show partiality when he judges. He judges with righteousness and justice. That means when it comes to God's judgment for sin, there is no one who gets a free pass. There is no one who gets special treatment. God is impartial and judges everyone justly, impartially, and according to their deeds. You don't get a pass for being an American. You don't get a pass or special treatment because you were born in a Christian home. You don't get a pass because you're a Presbyterian or a Baptist. You don't get a pass because you view yourself as a good person. Now again, I must remind you that Paul is talking here about the standard of God's judgment. He isn't focusing here on God's grace and salvation. God saves according to his grace, but he judges according to our deeds. 
So Paul says here that when God judges, he not only judges impartially, but he also judges based on our deeds. Jesus said this as well. The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Matthew 16, 27. Our deeds are what we do. It's our actions. It's our thoughts. It's our words. These make up our deeds. And God judges humanity impartially on the basis of our deeds. Know this. One day, you're going to stand before God. And if you're going to stand before God on your own two feet, apart from Christ, on the basis of your own life, know this, that God will judge you based upon your deeds. The deeds of the totality of your life. And he will do so with perfect impartiality. You're not going to stand before God and say, we're good, right? Remember that time I... Help the old lady across the street? That's got to count for something, right, God? It's going to count for nothing. As we'll see. So that's the first pairing together, the A pairing. Here's the B pairing, verses 7 and 10. And this B pairing teaches us that those who do good receive from God glory, honor, immortality, eternal life, and peace. Romans 2, 7. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Romans 2, 10. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul says here, that those whose life is made up of good deeds, they will receive from God glory, honor, immortality, eternal life, and peace. Now again, I must emphasize that Paul is talking about the standard of God's judgment. He isn't telling us here how we can be saved. This isn't salvation by works. I love what John Calvin says of these verses. And those who would want to imply that Paul is somehow teaching here salvation by works. He says, They who pervert this passage for the purpose of building up justification by works deserve most fully to be laughed at even by children. So don't go there. Paul is talking here about the nature and standard of God's judgment. When God judges, he judges according to deeds. And there are only two possible outcomes for such a judgment. Eternal life and divine wrath and anger, as we'll see in the next pairing. And Paul says here, the determining factor of God's judgment is our deeds. So what does it mean to do good? As these verses talk about. Well, it isn't just doing a good deed here and there. You know, making your bed, helping your mom with the groceries. It 
It isn't even about having your good deeds on Judgment Day outweigh your bad deeds. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about persevering in doing good. So what does that mean? Persevering in doing good. It means living an absolutely perfect life. A life in perfect unerring conformity to God's law. That just got harder. A life that perfectly fulfills God's law every second of every day of your entire life. That's what's required. The law says, do this and live. Jesus said that to the rich young ruler as he preached the law to him. He said, do this and you'll have eternal life. Good luck with that. Leviticus 18.5 says, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. Deuteronomy 27.26 Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. See, the problem with the law is we can't do it. We can't fulfill it. We can't be obedient to it. We can't do it. And that's what the law demands. It demands that we do it. It demands that we're obedient to it. We can't keep the law perfectly, which is God's requirement. James reminds us that if we sin in even one part of the law, we're guilty of all of it. James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. And Paul says in Galatians 3.10, For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. The law can only curse us. The law only convicts us. The law only makes us guilty. The law only points out our need. It can't supply the answer to our need. So we must ask ourselves if keeping the law perfectly is really even possible. And the answer, according to Paul, just a bit later on in Romans is, it is not possible. It is, in fact, impossible. Same thing that Jesus said. With man, these things are impossible. It's easier to go through the eye of a needle on a camel than it is to keep the law perfectly. Can't be done. Romans 3.10. We'll get to it in a little bit. Romans 3.10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. We all fail the test. Romans 3.12. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. Do good and live. Problem is, you can't do good. There is none who does good. There's not even one. So Paul here is either blatantly contradicting himself and twisting the gospel within two chapters of each other, 
or he's trying to make a point. And that is what Paul is doing. The point he is making is that if you are going to try and achieve eternal life on your own, in your own strength, by your own effort, then you would need to be perfect as regards the law of God. Your life would need to be a life that is persevering in doing good. If you're going to stand on your own at the judgment, then you're going to need to be perfect. And as we just read from chapter 3, we aren't actually able to do this. Not even one of us. So this path to eternal life by living a perfect life isn't actually an option, isn't actually open to us. And so the other path is the only other path we can take given God's judgment as it relates to the law. And that brings us to pairing C, verses 8 and 9. Those who live selfishly and obey God's law receive divine wrath and anger. Romans 2, 8 and 9. He says, but to those who are selfishly ambitious, so he's just talked about those who are able to keep the law perfectly. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation is their future. God's wrath and God's indignation is what is deserved. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man, emphasizing the individuality here, the personal nature of God's judgment. Every soul of man who does evil will receive tribulation and distress of the Jew first and also of the Greek. So here we see that selfishness is the basic motivating principle of those who are on this path, of those who have disobeyed God's law, which is how many of us? All of us. And the result of living selfishly is that they do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness instead. And the result of living a life of selfishness and unrighteousness and disobedience to the truth is having to face the wrath and indignation of a holy God. Because our God is a consuming fire. He judges justly. He judges righteously. He judges without respect of persons. This will be and the experience for every person outside of Christ. An experience of tribulation and distress for everyone who does evil. You say, well, I'm not an evil person. I don't do evil. What does it mean to do evil? It means to not obey the law. Not fulfill God's righteous, holy standard of conduct for His creatures made in His image, made to glorify Him by doing what He commands. When we fail to do that, it's evil. It's contrary to truth. It's contrary to righteousness. Colossians 3.25 says, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Those who end up 
on this second path, which is everyone outside of Christ. Simply get what they deserve. Simply get what justice demands, what the holiness of God demands. So what we've seen in verses 6 through 11 is that God judges impartially according to deeds, our deeds. And that there are only two destinations that are open to us, eternal life or divine wrath and indignation. Only those whose lives are found to be perfect, absolutely adhering in every moment of life to the law of God will receive eternal life. And everyone else will be found guilty before God of selfishness and unrighteousness and will receive divine wrath and indignation for all eternity. That's the first lesson to learn about God's judgment. Second lesson. God's judgment, again, remember, we're talking about God's judgment here. The, the nature of God's judgment, the standard of God's judgment, the implications of God's judgment. God's judgment demands the personal, perfect, perpetual performance of His law, verses 12 and 13. You want to play the game of I'm going to earn my way to heaven? These are the rules. As though that were possible. Paul has just said that both paths, the, paths of, the path of eternal life and the path of divine wrath and indignation, are to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Gentile, to the non-Jew, which is most of us. He says it in both verse 9 and verse 10. Listen to what commentator Doug Moo says about this. In contrast to the Jews' tendency to regard their election as a guarantee that they would be first in salvation and last in judgment, Paul insists that their priority be applied equally to both. The Jews are going to be first in salvation and that the message of salvation is going to go out to them first. But they're also going to be first in judgment because they've received more truth, special revelation. They've received the law written on tablets of stone and on parchment. Look with me at Romans 2, 12 and 13. Paul says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. The Jews had God's law. The law of Moses, special revelation, communicated from God's lips to Moses' ears. From God's hand to those stone tablets. The law of Moses was summarized in those Ten Commandments written on those tablets of stone. The Gentiles, by and large, did not have this law. And yet God had nevertheless written a form of His law on their hearts, in their conscience, internally. This is what theologians call natural law. The idea that even those who have never read a Bible or heard anything about the one true God nevertheless believe in their hearts that murder is wrong. 
that lying is wrong, that stealing is wrong, and so forth. Why do they believe that? Who put that there? God put it there. He wrote, as it were, His law on their hearts, on their consciences. That's a part of His common grace. And there's a part of us being image bearers. Paul's point here is to say that whether a person has the written law of God or not, they're going to be judged according to the law of God that they have. Whether it's in written form on tablets of stone and parchment or whether it's written on their hearts, they're going to be judged either way. No one is going to be able to utter an excuse and say, I didn't know God. I didn't know murder was wrong. I didn't know lying was wrong, was a violation. Believing the lie, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness, taking us back to Romans 1. This is what sinful humanity does. But they are still left without excuse because they have the law of God in one form or another. More explicitly in the law of Moses, more implicitly and internally in the law of conscience. All who sinned under the law, the Jews, will be judged by the law and will perish under the law. The judgment of God comes to both groups equally. And the result of the judgment is that they will both perish apart from Christ. They both experience divine wrath and indignation. Why? Because the standard of God's judgment is doing. Did you do what I commanded you? That's the standard of God's judgment. Doing the law. Romans 2.13 For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now once again, I remind you that Paul is not laying out the plan of salvation here. That's not his point. He's not focusing in on the gospel of God's grace. He's talking about law and judgment. He's talking about what God requires of us, what God demands of us. And what is it that God demands of us? That we do His will, that we obey His word, that we fulfill His law, and that we do so perfectly. Now, in theory, if you could do this, you would be justified. You would be sinless. You would be like Jesus. You wouldn't need salvation. You wouldn't need a Redeemer. You wouldn't need a Savior. Now here's the first mention of the word justified or justification in the book of Romans. We're going to see it a lot. The word justification is the judicial decision of God to regard a sinner as just or righteous in his sight. It is for God to declare you right with Him with all the benefits that go along with that. And in theory, if you kept the law perfectly, you would be justified in God's sight because you wouldn't be guilty of sin. But what is it we know from the rest of Scripture? We are all guilty of sin. We have all fallen short. 
That's Paul's whole point here, to prove beyond a shadow of doubt to all of us that we are all guilty of breaking God's law and that God, as the impartial judge, is just in condemning us. See, the Jews had a tendency to think that they were special. They were God's chosen people, chosen out of all the other nations of the earth. God chose them to be a special people and nation. They had a tendency to think that they were special because they had God's law, God's written commandments. But possessing the law and hearing the law and doing the law are two different things. Hearing the law merely, read and taught, is not the same thing as doing the law, fulfilling the law, obeying the law. It is only the doers of the law who will be just before God. And as we've already seen, we are all of us incapable of doing God's law perfectly. God's law demands personal, perfect, perpetual performance. Personal, the individual, me. This is a requirement for me. It's not a communal, this is not a group activity. It's not a group project. God demands this of me as he demands it of every single human individual. Personal, perfect, unerring. Never making a slip up. Every moment of every day, every thought, every word, every deed in complete fulfillment of God's law. Perpetual, all the time. You're never off the clock. Always, unceasing, performance, doing. Not just hearing it, not just going to church, not just... Doing is what is required. God says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's the standard. That's the law. That's what's required of you and of me. Perfection. And we can't do it. We're so far from doing it. We don't even come close to doing it. We don't have even a concept of how far we are from even coming close to fulfilling God's righteous demands. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Again, we must ask ourselves, is Paul laying out an alternative way of salvation here? Salvation by works? Hardly. No. Paul will make it clear in chapter 3 that works can never save us. Romans 3.20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law can never save us. It only condemns us. It only points out how far short we have fallen from God's righteous standard. Paul is talking here about God's standard of judgment. And his standard of judgment is nothing less than personal, perfect, perpetual performance of his law. That's the standard of judgment. Thirdly and finally, God's judgment will be applied justly, impartially, to everyone. Verses 14 through 16. 
For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having a law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them, on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Gentiles, Greeks, non-Jews, do not have the law. But they do instinctively the things of the law. Do not murder, do not lie, do not steal, and so forth. Not having the law of Moses, they are nevertheless a law unto themselves. Paul is saying they have a form of God's law within them, written in their hearts, across their consciences, that tells them what is right and what is wrong. The conscience is not an infallible guide, but it is a God-given tool and a testimony to what God requires of human beings. It's part of being made in the image of God, though that image is fallen and distorted. Of course, the strongest conscience is a conscience that is rightly informed by the Word of God, by the law of God. But the whole point is here that these Gentiles do not have that written Word. They do not have God's law, God's written law, external. And so they only have God's law internal, written on their hearts. And when they disobey their conscience, they feel guilty. And their conscience accuses them when they disobey it, or it defends them when they are doing the right thing. Paul's point here is that God is going to judge them according to the light they have. The Gentiles will still be found guilty for disobeying the law that God wrote on their hearts and across their consciences. And the Jews are going to be found guilty for disobeying the law of Moses written on tablets of stone and on, and on parchment. God's judgment is going to be applied justly to everyone, both Jew and Gentile. And they will be judged by God through the great judge, Jesus Christ. And this judgment will be based upon their deeds. Whether they did the law that God revealed to them. Deeds which, as we have seen, all of humanity has fallen short of performing. God's righteous standard of personal, perfect, perpetual performance of the law of God. Now, brothers and sisters, that is the bad news. But that is Paul's point in laying this all out. He's sharing the bad news. He must explain the malady thoroughly before he can present the glories of the remedy. He must help us understand our sickness before we will ever accept the cure. The bad news is that on our own, we are all guilty before God. God is the impartial judge who judges justly. And He is just to mete out His divine wrath and indignation upon all of us for all eternity because we have all failed to do His will, to obey His law personally, perfectly, perpetually. But guess what the good news is? The good news is that although there is no hope for you and me to obey God's law personally, perfectly, perpetually, there is one who did. 
Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus always did what was pleasing to the Father. Every day of his life, every moment of his life. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness during his lifetime. Jesus, of whom God the Father twice from heaven stated, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus, who said he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to do it, to complete it, to accomplish it. Jesus, the perfect law fulfiller, died on the cross as a sinless substitute for us so that our guilt could be transferred to Him. He paid for our sins in full on the cross. But not only that, Jesus, as the perfect law fulfiller, also fulfills God's righteous law on our behalf so that we are counted righteous in God's sight through faith in Jesus Christ. Our sins go to Christ. Christ's righteousness, His complete fulfillment of the law goes to us in a great exchange purchased through the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf. Hallelujah. We could never do on our own obey the law perfectly that which we could never do on our own, Jesus did. And He did it on our behalf. His righteousness becomes our righteousness when we repent of our sins and trust in Him as Savior. God gives it to us as a gift received by faith in Jesus alone. What the law could never do for us, Jesus has done. Let me read from Romans 8, 3 and 4 as I close. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not by us, but in us, as Christ comes and indwells in us, and we are spiritually united to Him so that all of His righteousness becomes our righteousness. There's a great little poem attributed to John Bunyan. And now I'm really closing. Here's the poem. Run, John, run. The law commands. But it gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. In Jesus Christ, God has supplied all that we lacked. And it's ours for the taking by faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for supplying so graciously all that I lacked through the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. All that my efforts, all that my works deserve is your judgment. Your wrath, anger, and indignation eternally. That's all I've earned. But in your grace, you've sent your Son 
to do for me what I could never do for myself. Supply all that I lacked. Forgive all that I've done. And provide my every righteousness. Receive simply by faith. Trusting in Jesus alone. What a gospel. Thank you, Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
If you're struggling with a weight of sin, sense of guilt for failing to keep God's law, run to the cross. Run to Jesus Christ. He's done for you all that you needed to have done for you. Trust in Him. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. All God's people said? Amen. How can that be? Romans 8.3 For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Go with no condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus.